0: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryan out there. Jerry's here. Special guest, Jerry. (laughs) This is Stuff You Should Know, the super subversive edition. Yeah. Which is, I mean, it's it's subversive. But not coming from who you'd expect, in this case, the subversive people, Chuck, are two of the crookedest, worst Americans to ever take a breath of life in the United States.
0: Yes. Uh, Hoover and Nixon, right?
1: Yes. Herbert Hoover and Charles J. Nixon.
0: Mm, no. <laughs> oh no.
1: <laughs> not those two. Was it uh, J. Edgar Hoover and Richard Nixon?
0: Richard Millhouse, I think That's is right. His
1: name. <laughs> <Milhouse>. <laughs> That's right. So, you picked this one, right? Um, yeah. I, I think we got uh, help from our buddy, was it, um, oh, it was a Grabster article, right?
0: This is a Grabster.
1: So, um, why did you choose this one, Chuck?
0: I'm just a Beatles nut. I'm reading a massive Beatles book and... Just I'm always thinking about the Beatles, so this isn't something <laughs> yeah. I knew a ton about. Yeah. So now I now I know more.
1: What are you thinking about the Beatles right now? They could write a song. Like they could, like they're really good at writing songs, you mean?
0: I think so. I know okay. you're not a Beatles guy, but they're regarded as good songwriters.
1: Sure. I, I'm willing to concede that at least. Yeah, I'm a grown person. I'm, uh, uh, I am can concede when I'm wrong or when I've been bested.
0: <laughs> I think we differ on Yoko Ono, though, so that'll be, you know, that's where the tables are turned.
1: Okay. Because so, you like her
0: singing, isn't that right?
1: I appreciate it. I don't oh, know, okay. like is a pretty strong <laughs> word, but I definitely appreciate it. There's some songs, like, have you ever heard I Love You Earth? Uh sure. That's a pretty sweet song. I, I like her singing on that. But All right. have you ever heard her um <laughs> her cover of um Katy Perry's Fireworks?
0: No, I bet that's oh, something.
1: I she did it at um maybe Moma or the Met or something like that and she's just standing there wailing. She's not singing words or anything like that, just wailing. And it was her cover of of Katy Perry's Firework, and it's it's pretty great to see. I'm sure if you look it up on YouTube, but I, I appreciate a lot of her stuff. How about that?
0: I appreciate her as a human, and it's yeah, always fun to human. look back at uh at performances, live performances uh, with Lennon when she would do a full like four or five songs in the row in the middle of like. Madison Square Garden concert, mm-hmm. and you could kind of see his his backing band just kind of like, oh boy, I can't believe we're doing <laughs> right. this. I can't They're believe thinking. she's really doing this.
1: Right, right. Um, and she's actually pretty strongly implicated in this whole thing. We're talking about John Lennon um, being pursued and, and surveilled and basically harassed by the FBI um, in the in 1972, actually, 1971, 72, I believe, um, for a very specific reason. And it was at a time when John Lennon and Yoko Ono had just gotten married. They got married like two, two, three years before and um, were a very famous couple. The Grabster argues that they may have been like the first genuine celebrity activist couple who actually used their celebrity as a way to um, help help influence or help causes, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, And by the time 1971-72 rolled around, Richard Milhouse Nixon was actually running for re-election again, and he decided that he didn't like people like John Lennon running around conceivably swaying the vote, particularly among newly minted voters in the 18- to 21-year-old block.
0: Yeah, I mean, he and Yoko had uh, been contributors to causes, uh, working-class causes. It's sort of the notion that uh, Lennon was always known as the working class hero, but uh, of all the Beatles, he grew up more solidly middle class than any of the rest of them. Mm-hmm. And not to say that that was a false persona, but he definitely sort of um, sort of jumped and sort of leaned into that, as uh, Noel Brown would say, uh-huh. uh, as far as, as his persona. And I think a lot of people that don't dig deep kind of think that John Lennon grew up in, with a very hard scrap of life. They're in Liverpool, which is not the case. But um, as a result of that, he championed the working man. He and Yoko contributed to causes. Mm-hmm. Uh, he became, along with Yoko, uh, very much uh, pacifist activists. And if you're a pacifist activist in the early 70s, you're not going to be a big fan of Richard Nixon, and he's not going to be a big fan of you because he was uh, he was not shy about war. No, he really wasn't. He'd even c- campaigned... Um I think in
1: 68 on ending the Vietnam War, and then actually went the exact opposite direction with that. Um, there was a lot, if you were a pacifist, there was a lot to be upset about in the 60s and early 70s because of Vietnam alone, you know?
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, one of the ways I think that got the most press that when people think about John and Yoko's activism is the bed ends that they had. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is B E D dash I N S. And that is, if you don't know what those are, that's when you lay around in bed. And you invite the press to come to your room and talk to you while you lay around in bed <laughs> and <laughs> right. why you're while you're laying around in bed. And it looked kind of ridiculous to a lot of people, uh, especially people on the right. But um, John Lennon's whole kind of point, and he was very tongue-in-cheek, kind of had a great sense of humor. But mm-hmm. I think it all sort of stemmed from that, which is like, hey, all you got to do is stay in bed and not go and start wars. And this is a pretty ridiculous way to drive that point home.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like, rather than having to, like, go out and oppose violence, you could oppose violence just by laying around in bed and doing nothing. Letting your (laughs) hair grow, I think, is what they were saying. Sure. Which is pretty awesome. And— The thing is, is it's John Lennon and, you know, Yoko Ono, and they're sitting around in bed with the press in their hotel room. And like that in and of itself is getting press. And then if you say, well, what is all this about? And you read a little further into the article, I don't know, maybe it kind of gets you in just the right way. And all of a sudden you start thinking that way too. And to the people who were, you know, running the whole um, military industrial complex, that, that, I mean, that's a threat. Um, Even if it's, just a threat of, of the threat of saying like just don't you don't even have to oppose war just don't do anything and, and that opposes war in and of itself and that was like kind of the way things were at the time like there was a lot of a lot of people in power who were really opposed to that kind of thinking who were opposed to people who were opposed to vietnam or war in general or violence of any kind um there was a big opposition to that and the people who were running the show in the United States were chief among those people. Like we said, Nixon as president and then running for re-election. And then J. Edgar Hoover, who was not shy at all about doing whatever he needed to to quiet dissent. Like he would generate dossiers on elected officials, uh, especially ones who were more uh, liberal, to, to basically keep them in line by threatening them with blackmail or even the threat of blackmail, you know? Um there were plenty of hippies who got their heads cracked in. There were people who were surveilled. Um, we did an episode on the Black Panthers, if you remember. We talked about um, COINTELPRO, the whole program to basically undermine and smear the Black Panthers in the public's mind. Like, the, J. Edgar Hoover was a a, a vicious, terrible human being. Um, and he ran the FBI for decades and was still running the FBI when they started to target John Lennon.
0: Yeah, so to set the stage here uh, of kind of how this all worked out was um, John Lennon had, uh, he was able to enter, the whole thing kind of boils down to whether or not he would be allowed to live in the U.S. or whether or not, uh, if he was eventually allowed to live in the U.S., if they could legally deport him. So he was able to enter the U.S. on a work visa in 71, and concurrent with this, uh, Yoko Ono had a custody battle going on. Uh, she had a daughter from a previous marriage in the early 70s, and she wasn't going to leave at all. Uh, she was legally there. They did try and deport her. They didn't know that she had a green card already, which was sort of the first foible in this thing. Right. But they um, they knew that they had a lot of leverage over Lennon because if they deported him, he would be without his wife, who was going to stay there. So they had this leverage Uh, Lennon loved living in New York City. That's where he wanted to make his permanent home.
1: So Uh, much so that that was also leverage that they had too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so Nixon's up for re-election in '72. um, He would go on to win, you know, in a big, big way against McGovern. But they were, you know, they were. uh, I was about to call them an organization. They were an administration Mm -hmm. that was very paranoid. Mm -hmm. Um, They would, obviously, with Watergate, they showed that they were willing to do anything to ensure their victory. Uh, And that included being really worried about people like John Lennon. Uh, I don't think he was at the top of their list of things to worry about, but he was on their list uh, thanks to Strom Thurmond, of all people.
1: Yeah, so Strom Thurmond, the horrible segregationist senator um, from, what, South Carolina, right? Uh, He he actually kicked this whole thing off because I guess— he noticed that John Lennon was, was, you know, he was a left-leaning rock star activist. He seems to have been one of the first people to notice the activism that was developing among John Lennon and Yoko Ono and to perceive it as a threat to the establishment because all those um, recently enfranchised 18-, 19-, and 20-year-old voters who hadn't had the right to vote until the 26th Amendment had been passed uh, I don't remember exactly when it was passed, but it was between 68 and 72 because 72 is the first election those younger kids were going to be able to vote in. And he apparently saw Lenin as among a, a group of people who could speak to those kids and sway them to the left and potentially unseat Richard Nixon, which it would turn out is just a total laugh because Nixon beat McGovern in a landslide. But at the time, they didn't know this, and Richard Nixon wasn't going to take any chances. So his— his the note from Strom Thurmond was very well received in the Nixon administration.
0: Yeah, I think. Uh, what I want to know is who told Strom Thurmond.
1: <laughs> that's what I want to know too. Because <laughs> that's I doubt. the biggest mystery here.
0: <laughs> yeah, I doubt if Strom Thurmond was too hip to any of this, but somebody probably got in his ear, and he said uh, he sent a note that specifically said they try and get him deported as a quote a strategic countermeasure. Right. Uh, and that's really kind of what got the ball rolling. Uh, we should also mention this other guy, John. I don't know if it's Wiener or Weiner in this case.
1: It's pronounced Wiener Slave.
0: We- oh, it is? <laughs> no.
1: Do he's- you remember there was a 30 Rock episode where there's like an HR mediator, and he's like this very soft, rosy-cheeked, very calm, mild-mannered man, and... um Liz Lemon says, well, Mr. Weiner Slav. And he goes, uh, uh, no, it's pronounced Weiner Slave.
0: <laughs> I miss that show.
1: It's like, it, That was like a really good moment.
0: They had such uh, great fun with dumb jokes like that and blah, <laughs> yeah. bob, bob, blah, blah.
1: Yeah, right. No, that was Arrested Development.
0: <laughs> oh, that's right. That was Arrested yeah. Development. They kind of had the same DNA, though. Yeah, for sure. So Wiener slave uh, <laughs> was a writer and or is a writer and historian still, and he is why we know so much of this. He yeah um, was writing a lot about John Lennon, writing a lot about the Beatles um, he decided to file a Freedom of Information Act request to get a lot of these documents uncovered over the years and eventually was successful um, in a big dump in 1997 mm-hmm. and then in another smaller one in 2006. Mm-hmm. And if it not been for his tenacity, um, I don't know if uh, anyone else would have picked up this mantle because, you know, in the end, it's not the most interesting story in the world. <laughs> this is true. I say that in a whisper. It, it's not like some huge, like, oh my God, revelations. It's sort of one of those things that's like, just another example of the small things that authoritarians do in this country under, you know, in in the back rooms and in the whispered rooms of the White House.
1: Well, you know, I think like that's really true. And that's a really good point is that like if you just look at it on his face, like, you know, the FBI followed around John Lennon, kept tabs on him. And like if you read the files, it's really pedestrian, boring stuff. Um, you might miss, like, the the real story here. And the real story here is that a sitting president directed the FBI to get dirt that he could use against a, a political rival, an activist rock star, to help get him deported or to figure out what leverage he could use against him so that that, that sitting president could get reelected. That's the real story here. And that the FBI acted as, as you know, this— um, Basically, a Gestapo-type agency on behalf of Nixon. That's the the real story that I think kind of gets covered up by John Lennon and Yoko Ono's celebrity and, the you know, the FBI kind of wackily following him around.
0: Yeah, it, it is funny because if you look at some of the files and some of the reports, like they would go to his concerts and undercover agents would go to the concerts and mm-hmm. report things like, you know, he – for his encore, he sang Give Peace a Chance, and we all know about that song. <laughs> right. And they, they would take notes on song lyrics and stuff like that. So it's all just kind of silly. But, um, yeah, I definitely agree that it's, it's just an example of the links that Nixon would go to to yeah. be a dirty thief.
1: Yes. Well, Chuck, I think we should demonstrate the links that we'll go to to bring everyone a message break. What do you think?
0: By just shutting up for two minutes?
1: Yep. Okay, so the whole thing um, started eventually, it wasn't clear what was going to happen, but the real thing that kicked all of John Lennon's big problems off was that he was arrested in 1968 in London for possession of narcotics. Um, I'm making air quotes you can't see because he was busted with some pot, I think maybe some hash, um, and like rolling paraphernalia. Just some really BS beef um, that they got him on in, in London. There was some true-believer, zealous, anti-drug cop named Detective Sergeant Norman Pilcher, <laughs> um, who was later uh, jailed, actually, for committing perjury uh, as a police officer. Um, but he uh, he was alleged to have planted the evidence that may or may not be true. But it was like a, a, a rap that Lennon shouldn't have had on him or Yoko shouldn't have had on her. Um, that they they just wanted a high-profile bust. And that happened in 1968, and it turned out that that would follow Lenin for years to come and really kind of be the fulcrum that the U.S. government had on him to try to to keep him from staying in the U.S.
0: Yeah, I mean, he wasn't even doing heroin at this point, I don't think. No. Uh, So they should have waited if they wanted a real case.
1: (laughs) Well, it makes you wonder. Like, I I remember hearing in our, uh, I think, our Black Panther episode that the FBI was not above, like, addicting uh, activists and dissidents uh, with heroin, like turning them on to heroin and then getting them addicted and then just, you know, taking them out of the game like that.
0: Yeah. I think Lennon never shot heroin. That was his jam. Okay. So— Early 71, uh, like I said, he was able to enter on a tourist visa, and then when Nixon uh, and his cronies get going on the deportation, the whole thing was based on the fact that he had overstayed his visa. Mm-hmm. Um, but along with that, it was very valuable to them that he had a uh, a drug conviction under his belt at that point. Right. Yep. So they were surveilling him. They were surveilling other artists around the country, too, uh, who they thought were subversive and sending messages. Um, Lenin, Speaking of getting busted for pot, Lennon uh, very famously wrote a song called John Sinclair mm-hmm. uh, in support and did a tribute, or not tribute, but a, a, a concert in, um, I don't know if they were raising money yeah, or just awareness. Both. Okay, for John Sinclair, who was a poet, he was the manager of the, the MC5, great, great rock band, um, and he offered two undercover cops uh, a couple of joints. And went to, he had already had a couple of minor pot offenses, but he went to prison for 10 years for this. And uh, a big refrain in that song, John Sinclair, which is a cool song and very um, rootsy and bluesy, not like very Lennon at all, uh, is 10 for two, 10 for two, mm-hmm. is what they keep saying. 10 years for two joints.
1: Yeah, that he sold to an undercover cop, right?
0: Yeah, but it worked. He actually was sprung from prison shortly after this concert.
1: Yeah, like two days after, and some people say eh, I think that indicates he was already going to be sprung. That the Michigan Supreme Court knew this was a uh, this is a trumped up charge, but other people say no. The the concert surely had some impact, but Sinclair is. Um, so the the point about Sinclair and John Lennon is John Lennon performed the song he was the headliner at this concert in Ann Arbor and he had been coordinating with other people in John Sinclair's orbit um that were prominent figures in the new left and at this time in the early 70s the 60s had ended um they the it had become clear that flower power hadn't worked the evil people were still in charge so what was next uh, maybe nonviolent coordination and um, and resistance wasn't the way to go. Now, Lenin and Yoko were dedicated pacifists. They didn't want anything to do with violence. They didn't condone violence. They didn't like violence in any way, shape, or form. But there were elements in the new left um, who weren't necessarily convinced that that wasn't the only way to— to change the course of of the United States and get rid of people like Nixon and and his cronies. Um, And so if you're watching this from the outside, like your J. Edgar Hoover and Richard Nixon, you're watching the people on the new left, and you don't know which way they're going to break, violent, nonviolent, who knows, but you're treating all of them with suspicion. And all of a sudden, John Lennon, one of the most recognizable and popular people on the planet— is suddenly hanging out with some of these new left cats that you don't know which way they're going to go, violent or nonviolent, and that really drew the attention of the FBI to John Lennon. It wasn't necessarily he and Yoko and their pacifist stuff. It was uh, some people think that it was his involvement with genuine, bona fide new left activists like uh, John Sinclair or like um, like Bobby Seal. Um, Uh, like John Sinclair founded the White Panther Party, which they had a 10-point platform, like the Black Panthers platform and the first platform in the White Panther platform is that it's fully in support of the Black Panthers 10-point platform. So he's hanging out with a bunch of people that um, had proven themselves as as dyed-in-the-wool foes of the Nixon administration. That definitely caught the FBI's attention.
0: Yeah, and they had big plans. Uh, They got together in, I think, their first meeting was at the Alamooki Township. That's how I'm going to pronounce it. (laughs) The Scaramucci Township. (laughs) In New Jersey, and initially called themselves the Alamooki Tribe, but uh, wisely changed their name to the Election Year Strategy Information Center. And their plan was, in 1972, is to... Hosted, and Lennon gave them money. He gave them like 75 grand to kind of get going mm-hmm. and said, here, let's do a bunch of concerts with the help of John Lennon all across, uh, all across the country in 1972. We can have different artists performing different speakers, um, you know, like pounding home the anti-war message. And then as these concerts roll closer and closer to the election, it'll culminate in a big protest at the RNC in Miami. Um, this is all very legal stuff. It wasn't uh, they weren't staging riots or anything. These were just concerts, awareness, um, trying to keep Nixon from winning. And Nixon got worried. And he knew uh, that, like you said, the influence that someone like John Lennon could have was, like, he didn't have anyone on his side. There was no Scott Bayo at the time wooing the youngsters. Bob Blah Blah? To the right. <laughs> oh, he was Bob Blah Blah, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. That's funny. Um so this is all going on, and this is kind of what ramps up the pressure to get Lennon out of there. Uh, this custody battle's going on. They know about that. And so their, their first step was to instruct immigration and naturalization to try and say, hey, you've overstayed your visa, you got to get out of here. And Lennon knew this was coming. This is no secret. He had gone on TV shows talking about being uh, followed by the FBI, being uh, having his phone tapped, which we still aren't sure if that really happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it says officially that there was no legal phone tapping in the FBI documents, but that <laughs> throwing that word legal in there right. just kind of makes you think like, well, were there any illegal ones that you're not going to tell us about?
1: Yeah, I read. I, I I read an interview. So this is like the the depths of my depravity. I didn't even listen to the interview. I read a Fresh Air interview with John Weiner or Weiner um, a, about this, and he said that in the the FBI responded and said they they found no evidence of illegal wiretapping by the FBI. Or no, legal wiretapping by the FBI. So, so Weiner's like, okay, does that mean they were doing illegal wiretapping? Or does it mean that they didn't look very hard for evidence? It, it doesn't mean that they weren't tapping his phone, is what he's saying.
0: Right. Uh, it at least made Lennon paranoid enough. Yeah. Like he wasn't just not, he wasn't not sweating this. He was, this made him very paranoid, um, and with good reason. But he took to going next door at the, uh, Dakota building. So he would let Lennon use his phone in his apartment uh, to make phone calls. (laughs) And I guess, you know, assist with the cause at the same time a little bit. And then the FBI said, you know, what could really help is if we could bust them currently for narcotics in the United States. If we have an active charge, drug charge against them. And Hoover sent it out himself. He said, quote, for info on a bureau. Uh, NYC PD Narcotics Division is aware of the subject's recent use of narcotics, which is like every day, and are attempting to obtain enough info to arrest both subject and wife Yoko based on PD investigation.
1: Yeah, and by this time, I'm thinking he was using heroin. I think that's what they were referencing as his recent use. Oh, really? I didn't
0: think that started till later.
1: I thought it was the early 70s.
0: I thought it happened during his lost weekend, but... I may be wrong on that. I'm not that far along. I, I'm going to
1: err toward you then, because I'm just surmising here. I'm not the one who has a big old book of Beatles history, <laughs> <laughs> so um, I don't know. They never, they never actually busted him, right? This was all just like they were planning on doing this, but they never needed to.
0: I don't think he was arrested uh, in the United States, was he? Yeah.
1: I didn't know. I didn't get that impression. But but it seemed like everything was kind of barreling toward that. And even, like you were saying, the FBI was like, we've let the NYPD know to, to, to go do this. Um, so, and if you take a step back, like – This is some heat. This is some pressure that they're putting on John and Yoko. They're basically saying, we're going to split you guys up by deporting John because we know that Yoko is not going to leave the country because of this custody battle. She can't afford to. So she has to stay here. So if we threaten deportation to John Lennon, it might actually um, keep him in line. And the FBI used the word neutralized, that they were seeking to neutralize Lennon. Um, And I guess some people who don't dig very deeply into the story are like, they were going to assassinate John Lennon. And um, John Weiner um, has pointed out, like, that's not at all what they meant. They meant, like, basically making him ineffective, like um, taking him out of the game, basically, one way or another. um, But not killing him, just convincing him through putting this undue, unfair, undemocratic pressure on him to drop his activities with the new left.
0: Yeah, and they and by the way, I think I think he probably was using heroin in the late sixties and had an on again off again. But either way, he So uh, so
1: that makes sense because I did see that guys like Jerry Rubin and um uh I think Rennie Davis a couple of, like, the Chicago 7, like, they didn't even, like, hang out with him because he was doing too many drugs. And I, I, I'm guessing that it wasn't like he was smoking so much pot, we can't even talk with them anymore. Like, I think he was shooting dope and they weren't.
0: Yeah, well, he never shot it. He always smoked it. Or smoking um, dope. But he and, I think he and Yoko were doing heroin actually before the Beatles broke up at the end. Okay. Uh, when they were sort of estranged. Not the with the Beatles, not John and Yoko, but... Um, at any rate, these, like I said, these investigations are going on, and they're going to his concerts,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: they're not even sending back information that really means much. They're even saying some of these informants, like, you know what, they're they're not even really down with, like the new left isn't even down with them because they think they're just uh, quote self uh, aggrandizing rock stars, yeah, uh, or there's little chance that they'll accomplish anything because they spend all their time doing drugs. They're kind of sending the message, like. You really don't need to worry so much about John Lennon. He's not much of a threat. Yeah. Uh, Kind of one of the funny things about this investigation was when – and Lennon was one of the most famous people in the world, one of the most recognizable faces in the world on planet Earth, along with Yoko Ono. Mm -hmm. And the FBI passes around a sheet with Lennon's picture on it so they can recognize him but it was the wrong photo it was of a different human being it wasn't even john lennon
1: yeah it was a street busker from the west village named david peel so funny who had a record that i guess john lennon helped produce or something and he looked vaguely like john lennon but that was the that was the picture that the fbi passed around to the cops of the wrong guy they also the fbi also put out an all points bulletin um, searching for John Lennon and said that he's at the St. Regis at 150 Bank Street. Um, but St. Regis Reg- Landscape Supply, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> I guess that's what they meant because the St. Regis Hotel is on Central Park. Um, and John Lennon was indeed living on Bank Street at the time, but he was at 105 Bank Street. So that all points bulletin was all kinds of wrong, but this is the level of like, um, coppery that 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 the fbi was conducting you know trying to get john lennon
0: all right well let's take a break and we'll come back and talk a little bit about lennon's uh official defense right after this Right. So John Lennon is not going to take this lying down. Uh, he, was, he was paranoid. He was going on like the Mike Douglas show and talking about the FBI coming after him. Um, the first thing he did was probably what any really, really rich person would do is he hires a top rate bulldog attorney um, to try and defend this or at least delay this. And this guy's name was Leon Wilds. And he really did delay this. He was sort of a master at filing these motions and getting it extended and extended, and Lenin was able to stay in the country longer and longer and longer. But he was also kind of instrumental in um, kind of letting Lenin know that this was a real situation that he was involved in.
1: Right. Um, The thing is, is if you... um are a immigration prosecutor for the federal government of the United States, you know that there is not a ton of resources allocated to your division, right? Or yeah. traditionally there hasn't been. And so, customarily, the Justice Department has, or, or I guess INS, has left it up to each prosecutor to determine how hard they want to prosecute the case. And so, if you are a... Um, upstanding person who's never posed any sort of threat to the United States and uh, maybe you own a business or you're a productive member of society. There is a chance that the INS is going to look the other way and not actually deport you, even if you are here illegally. You have overstayed your visa or you came to the country illegally. Who knows? Um, And that's actually where the Dreamer program came from, DACA. Uh, It basically said, like, these particular immigrants were brought here as children and they um, pose no threat. Most of them are going to college or college bound or they're in the military. So we're going to not deport them. Um, and what what Lenin's um, lawyer told him was like, all of this is true, and yet they're putting the heat on you like I have never seen. This is, this is clearly coming down from on high. Like, they want to get you out of the United States, and it's not just this prosecutor.
0: Yeah, and the other thing that happens uh, when it comes to a, a case like this is they have to weigh uh, or they can be decided basically on the value of that an immigrant uh, might bring to the U.S. by being an American uh, or living in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so there was, a, you know, it, it's kind of funny to look back now and think that there had to be a case made that John Lennon brings any kind of value. But they did. And there was a series of letters written um, by Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and Joyce Carol Oates, Leonard Bernstein, John Updike, just a series of very famous artists. Mm-hmm kind of arguing in favor of John Lennon being allowed to live here. It was sort of a flood of uh, public outcry, like what, you know, what Little was known back then, at least. Like, you can't just, there's tremendous value to letting John Lennon stay in this country.
1: Right. And don't forget, John Cage wrote a letter, too. And I'm sure it was kind of like, well, you know, do you want me to write a letter for you, John? He's like, "Uh, yeah, sure. I'm I'm sure that would help a lot, John Cage. (laughs) because I'm sure no one in the Nixon administration's ever heard of you. Yeah, probably so. So um, the the one, kind of the, the upshot, I'm just going full on using this word now. The upshot of, of that letter writing campaign was not even just so much to demonstrate the value of, of John Lennon remaining in the United States. It was, if you kick him out, like there's going to be a public outcry and you're going to be held to account and asked to explain why you guys kicked him out Um, so it did have a bit of that combined with um, his, his attorney's tenacity it kept John Lennon in the country he was actually never deported even though they were he had a he lived for, I think, two or three years with a you-have-60-days-to-leave-the-country order, and <laughs> his his lawyer kept getting it extended and extended and extended. But for three years, that was the threat that he was living under. And again, if he was deported, he would leave without his wife, who had to stay in the country for her own custody battle. Um, so that was that was a, a lot of strain on him, actually. And um, the, the, the worst part about this whole thing is not that the FBI did this and that the Nixon administration signal matter, that it all came down to Strom Thurmond writing this memo to kick things off. It was that it worked. Like, they sought to neutralize John Lennon and his political activism, and he stopped. He actually did. He gave in uh, in August of 1972 by announcing that he was not going to take part in that series of concerts that was going to culminate at the Republican National Convention uh, or uh, engage in any kind of Activist activities any longer. He's just going to go back to being a, a musician again.
0: Yeah. And by this point, uh, Hoover was dead. Uh, L. Patrick Gray was the acting director of the FBI. And in that same month, that August, uh, before the election in November, um, the FBI's New York office reported to Gray that he's no longer going to be involved with these concerts. He's no longer with the new left. Um, we don't really need to worry about him anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, We're going to basically settle this case and close this case after Nixon wins the election. And like we said earlier a couple of times by a landslide, so this is all sort of for naught anyway. Um, Gerald Ford ended up overturning Lenin's deportation order Mm -hmm. in 1975 that was already filed. And in 76, he got his green card and lived in New York very famously in the Dakota for the last four years of his life uh, before he was... Murdered in the street, uh, which I think we should do an episode on that at some point. Maybe in a couple of years, once this one is well in the rearview mirror. You bet, that would be a I good agree. one. Um,
1: so, if if John Lennon apparently before he died, he gave a couple interviews and he said of this time, like that, it nearly ruined him as an artist. You know, like you said, he wasn't he wasn't just not sweating it. Like he sweated it every day. It was a big, hairy problem in his life all the time and a source of great stress. Um, so in addition to the stress, it, it it stole his focus. Like, it made him think about that and, like, how much he hated the Nixon administration and how terrible the FBI was for how they were harassing him and possibly tapping his phone. And, and it just took his mind from his art. And he later said that it al- almost ruined him as an artist because the the— Work he was producing at the time was journalism, not poetry, as he put it, yeah. um, which is a very sad effect, but it's it's a really real world effect when you've got something just looming uh, in the front of your mind that you can't get out of your mind, especially if it's dealing with badness that's that has a, a terrible effect on you and and your life in general. it can produce an entire bad period of your life, you know.
0: Yeah, uh, he was like, I had to let Yoko sing a lot. <laughs>
1: I have got, I have something I have to say. I don't want to forget it. In one of the FBI notes at that John Sinclair concert, mm-hmm. the FBI informant reported that the song John Sinclair was not up to Lennon's usual standards. <laughs> and you get this, Yoko can't even remain on key. <laughs> well, that was an FBI informant.
0: Yeah, he had a good ear, but... And you know, it, it. I like the song. It doesn't like belong up there with his greatest songs. Yeah. But it was very. It was very clear. It was sort of in the tradition of protest songs. It's got this acoustic uh, slide dobro guitar, and uh, you know, it, it sort of it fits in with the great folk songs of all time. I think, but sure. not necessarily one of the great Lennon or Beatles songs.
1: Is it as good as John Henry was a steel driving man? I
0: think it's better. I like it better. Really? <laughs> uh, yeah, and you know, like we mentioned earlier, the reason we know all this was because of Weiner's reporting. And uh, he eventually got those documents released, and there was, you know, in his circle, there was a big hubbub, like what's going to be in there, um, what, what secrets are, will be revealed. And really not much. What was revealed was um, embarrassment, For the FBI, embarrassment that they released a picture that wasn't even John Lennon, uh, embarrassment that they had a very unethical um, and perhaps even illegal Mm -hmm. um, motivation behind trying to get uh, uh, this person deported. And it was just egg on the face. And that's why they tried to keep it under wraps for so many years, hoping that it would not get out. Not because there were some uh, big revealing documents, but they were just like, can we just sort of act like this didn't happen?
1: Yeah, so we'll we'll classify everything as a national security risk, and they did. And actually, that that last trove of documents, the little handful that trickled out at, in two thousand six, was a MI five, a, a British secret service um, file on Lenin that the U.S. said if they it was. It, it that that last bit of document contained a file from a foreign government that had trusted the U.S. to keep it and that it could result in economic, diplomatic, and military action if they were to release it. Like the U.K. was just going to bomb the U.S. for releasing their document or their file on John Lennon. That's why the FBI held on to it until 2006. And yeah. then they lost a court case. So, like, if there's a hero of the story, it's John Weiner or John Weiner, I don't know how he says his name, and I'm sorry either way, because he was the one that really stood up, not just for John Lennon, but for the First Amendment, you know, and and people's ability to be politically active without, you know, the threat of being intimidated. Um, So good for him. Totally. Uh, You got anything else about this? Got nothing else. Uh, I have a, an article to direct everybody to. Is on Pop Matters. John Lennon, colon, revolutionary man as political artist. And it's about all this, sorry, history, but also just um, a pretty good critical evaluation of him as an activist. And, and it's just a, a really good, interesting article. So check it out. And since I said check it out, everybody, it's time for Listener Mail.
0: Uh, this is in reference of our haunted... Real estate. Uh, I guess that was a short stuff, right? Had to be.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was.
0: Like, please tell me we didn't do 45 minutes on that.
1: We could have.
0: <laughs> uh, hey guys, been a listener for years and finally have a good reason to write you. I was listening to the episode on whether you're supposed to disclose whether a house is haunted or not, and it hit close to home. Two years ago, we bought our first house, and I made a point to run a report to see if anyone died in the house. The previous owner had just died within a year, but it didn't say where. I wasn't really worried about someone actually dying in the house. I was really just trying to get a big discount. (laughs) However, (laughs) the agent said he did no, so no big discount. Uh, Cut to two years later, I found out from neighbors and research that the previous owner did not die. However, he was a creep who actually had multiple abuse charges. In fact, I found an article stating that he had a woman tied up in our basement. Man. Who he tortured until she was luckily able to escape uh, for weeks. Uh, that's like almost worse than just a regular person dying. Just somebody dying
1: of natural causes—it's a million times worse.
0: Well, no, I was about to say worse than a murder. I guess they're on par. Yeah. Well, let's debate that at length. <laughs> I don't want to—I don't want to rank awful crimes, <laughs> right? <laughs> but I think that might creep me out just as much. Let's just say that. Sure. Uh, the police searched the house and found oodles of weapons. The charges were eventually dropped. Apparently, he had money. And he redid the entire basement, which is beyond creepy. I don't know if this qualifies as info that should have been provided to us at purchase, but it sure so. seems like it, huh? Yeah. Uh, that is from Andy. Uh, Andy Oh, okay. Well, thanks a lot, Andy. Uh, is is there a
1: heart over the eye?
0: Uh, no, but it's typed.
1: Is it... Um It could be uh, Andy McDowell. I think she spells her name like that. I could see something like this happening to Andy McDowell, can't you? Sure. I love Andy McDowell. Well, whether it's from Andy McDowell or not, we appreciate the email. Um, Thank you. And yes, I I agree. I think the realtor should have disclosed that if you ask me. Totally. Uh, If you want to let us know about some way a realtor wronged you or anybody did, we want to hear about it. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com.